KBCS HD1, Bellevue, Seattle, Tacoma, a broadcast service of Bellevue College since 1973. I'm Lucy Berginski. A graphic novel, We Are Not Strangers, by Josh Tuninga dropped this month. It features a relationship intersecting the Sephardic Jewish and Japanese American communities in Seattle during the 1940s. University of Washington Chair of Sephardic Studies Dr. Devin Nahr wrote the afterword for the book. Sephardic Jewish culture is less known compared to the Ashkenazi Jewish culture that is typically associated with lox and bagels and matzo ball soup. In fact, Dr. Nahr elaborates on why this graphic novel is rare and important for the Sephardic community. What's significant about the graphic novel is not only the way in which it weaves together the stories of Japanese, American, and Sephardic Jewish families, in Seattle in a very special way. But from the Sephardic side of things, I believe this very well may be the first graphic novel like in the history of the world that includes some dialogue and expressions in Ladino and that seeks to depict the world of Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews. And so in that regard, it addresses that question of visibility and representation. You know, if when I began my studies, there had been a graphic novel that touched in any way on the world of Sephardic Jews, like that would have changed my life in a certain sense to see that recognition. You think about the many different films that have featured Jewish characters and things. There's never been an American film, essentially, that has featured a Sephardic Jewish protagonist. You know, so it's it's not really well reflected in the broader American cultural scene. And so in that regard, having Josh's graphic novel come out is a landmark moment for Sephardic Jewish cultural expression and for bringing that experience to not only broader audiences, but to members of the community themselves who can see their own culture reflected and represented in something that is available to everybody. But that, that, that's very, very powerful. That's very, very powerful. And I hope it, it uh, you know, while it's the first, I hope it won't be the last. Dr. Nard dives into the significance of Seattle's Sephardic Jewish community. Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jewish peoples are two variations of the of global expressions of Jewish identity, culture, and historical trajectory. And uh, to to make things simple, we could say that Ashkenazi Jewish people are those who come from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, language historically associated with those communities is Yiddish, whereas Sephardic Jews come from the Mediterranean world, from, from Spain. And, you know, after 1492, the Jewish communities of Spain were expelled and many of them settled in the Ottoman Empire in the Muslim world of the Eastern Mediterranean. And they continued to speak essentially a Spanish-based language that they wrote in Hebrew letters called Ladino. And those are the Sephardic Jewish communities that are uh, highlighted in the, in the graphic novel. Sephardic Jews used to kind of poke fun at the Ashkenazi Jews because the Ashkenazi Jews, they called them the schmaltzes because they cooked with chicken fat, whereas the Sephardic Jews were called the mazolas because they cooked with vegetable oil. And then the food that comes out is also very different as well. You know, you might associate Jewish food like, a, I don't know, chicken soup or something or gefilte fish or that's not the stuff that the Sephardic Jews have been eating in the in their Mediterranean context, nor what they brought with them in, in to the American context. Like there are other foods, like a boreka, for example, is maybe the most famous one. A boreka, the term comes from Turkish burek, and the best way to describe it is kind of like uh, it can be a savory 
or a sweet kind of like empanada. The names are completely different as well. You know, in the Ottoman world, there are no, you know, Goldsteins or Goldbergs. I mean, these may be associated as Jewish names in, in a certain American kind of context, but those are not the Jewish names that were Jewishly identifiable in the Ottoman context. You know, Al-Hadef, Azuz, Bahar, they are different different variations. There's a term that that people use to describe that dynamic. It's called Ashkenormativity. You can infer what that means, but just like default Jewishness is the Ashkenazi version of Jewishness. Understanding the Sephardic experience in Seattle in the United States is of great significance. It gives us a very different entry point into understanding who Jewish people are, what Jewish histories have been, what the different possibilities of Jewish identity could be. Here we have people who are Jewish. They are speaking a Spanish-based language. They are coming from the Muslim world of the Mediterranean. They are consuming cuisine that is different from what we might expect normative European Jewish food to look like. Um, they are uh, engaging in different kinds of practices in terms of their religious observances, although still Jewish, just a very different expression of what it means to be Jewish and a different understanding of, say, the relationship between the Spanish world, the Jewish world, and the Muslim world. And I think destabilizing some of our expectations about who Jewish people are, where they come from, what their culture is, what their language is, maybe even what they look like, can be very, very significant and important in understanding our contemporary world. Dr. Nahr is the chair of the Sephardic Studies at the University of Washington. He recalls the beginning of the Strom Center for Jewish Studies. UW became a resource for the Sephardic community because the Sephardic community and the university have really developed a very strong partnership over the last 10 years. You know, when I arrived here at the University of Washington and people in the Sephardic community found out that I myself am of Sephardic Jewish background and Sephardic Jewish history and culture is my expertise, people in the community came to me and they wanted help deciphering their family documents and books written in Ladino, a language that maybe the older generation could still understand, but a language that they could not necessarily read when written in the traditional Hebrew characters. So I began deciphering the uh, the archival documents and the personal papers and the inscriptions on the inside of books from the 18th century that people had inherited from their grandparents or great-grandparents. And it was a very fascinating and mutually enriching experience. I mean, I'll never forget one of the first gentlemen who came to me with a document. And the document was written in Ladino, in the Sephardic Hebrew cursive called Solitreo. And the only thing this guy, who was in his 90s, the only thing he could understand from the document was that it said the year 1942, and it said the place Seattle. I began to read the document, and the man became emotional. It turns out that the document was this man who was in his 90s. It was his grandfather's last will and testament. And the man says to me, says, Dr. Nar, I've been waiting 70 years to find out what my grandfather's last wishes were. And here you are, you've come from another part of the country, you've come here to Seattle, and you have been the intermediary between my grandfather and me, and you have brought 
his words to life for me. That was a very powerful experience, obviously for him and for me too. And then I wondered, I said, well, there's got to be other interesting documents like that. Let's see. And I made a call to members of the community. And soon enough, people were bringing out from their bookshelves and from their closets and from under the bed and the attic documents and books. I mean, people had books from the from the 1700s in the Ottoman Empire, of which there are like no other copies in the world sitting here in this relatively remote corner of the Pacific Northwest. I mean, it was amazing. And over the course of a few years, we have established at the University of Washington, one of the largest collections of Ladino books pertaining to the Sephardic Jewish communities of the former Ottoman Empire in the entire country. We have now more books in Ladino than the Library of Congress or Harvard University. And so that became the basis of how the University of Washington developed the Sephardic Studies program and how we began to become a resource for the community, which was essentially aiding members of the community in understanding and interpreting their own historical documents and their own material legacies and uh, what we used to call like essentially treasures brought out and preserved over the generations. Could you share a little bit about your family and, and where they're from? My father's family comes from a city in what is now Greece, but was once also part of the Ottoman Empire called Salonika or Thessaloniki. And that's the city where my grandfather was born. And so it was a city that I heard about when I was growing up. I tasted its foods and I smelled some of the aromas, you know, when I would go to my grandfather's house, my extended family, and occasionally my own home. I heard the Ladino language spoken among the older generation, but nobody spoke it to me. This was a world with which I, I had a sense of familiarity, but it was also like a different kind of universe. I grew up in New Jersey, and I didn't have any friends who had a picture of their great-grandfather on the wall who was a rabbi, but he was wearing a Turkish fez. That was an unusual dynamic in suburban uh, New Jersey and so I became very intrigued by that universe. And as I began to look more into that culture and that history and try to contextualize my own family within a broader story, I also became struck by how little there was out there in terms of public awareness and public knowledge. Like when I went to college, I thought, okay, maybe I could take a course about Sephardic Jewish history or learn about Sephardic Jews, Ladino-speaking Jews from the Ottoman Empire, Greece, and Turkey in some kind of you know, Jewish studies class, but it wasn't really even part of the curriculum. And so that's what kind of piqued my interest and inspired me to delve further into the history and the culture to try to understand it on the one hand, but also to make the history and the culture more legible, more recognizable, more part of the broader academic and public consciousness. And that's what sort of set me on my academic path, which I could not have imagined if you you know, if you asked me when I was a freshman, oh, you're going to become again, a PhD in history and you're going to focus on Sephardic Jewish history, I would have said that is, you're pulling my leg, man. That's a crazy idea. But here I am many years later, and that's precisely what I've done. Seattle became the second largest hub in the nation for Sephardic culture and community. Dr. Nart illustrates how. It's important for people to know about the Sephardic community in Seattle for a number of reasons. I think perhaps the most important one is the the unique presence of the Sephardic community here in Seattle. In other words, if we go back to a period of the period of World War I, and you're thinking about Jewish life in the United States, New York is the center, 
of Jewish demographic and cultural production. In the Sephardic sub-Jewish universe in the United States, after New York, Seattle was the second most important site of Sephardic Jewish cultural production and of Sephardic Jewish community life. So in that regard, Seattle stands out and it is uniquely positioned as it relates to the broader history of um, of Jewish presence in the United States. The, um, the origins of the Sephardic Jewish community in Seattle go back about 120 years. And the initial link for Sephardic Jews coming to the Pacific Northwest has to do with their relationship with their Greek Christian neighbors in the their uh, home communities in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Ottoman Empire, who informed their Sephardic Jewish neighbors about some economic opportunities in the far reaches of the United States in the new state in the Union uh, of Washington State. And essentially, the story, kind of the folk legend here, is that some of these Sephardic Jews were encouraged to come to Seattle. When you arrive in New York, you take the train across the country, and when you're about to fall off in the Pacific Ocean, you get out, and there will be an up-and-coming town called Seattle, and it is uh, surrounded by water, and it will remind you of the Mediterranean. And of course, you say that, well, they must have come in the summertime, obviously, to have that association with the Mediterranean. But the idea was planted, and a few individual young men specifically came from the island of Marmara, which is in the Marmara Sea near uh, Istanbul, and from the island of Rhodes. Both of these places, then part of the Ottoman Empire, but Istanbul and Marmara stay part of Turkey, and Rhodes is part of Greece. But at that time, they were part of one broader Sephardic Jewish community in the Ottoman context, and they came to Seattle, and they got involved in a variety of different uh, business practices in the region. In Pike Place Markets, some of the early merchants of Pike Place Market were Sephardic Jews from the Ottoman Empire, especially in fish, but also in fruit uh, and vegetables. The first boot blacks union in Seattle, shoe shiners, was established by Sephardic Jews. Now, the, the thing that also makes the Sephardic Jewish experience in Seattle fascinating is that these Sephardic Jews, because of the place that they came from, because of the language that they spoke, because of the kinds of people that they were associating with, like Greeks, for example, they were oftentimes not recognized as Jews, neither by already established Jews or by society at large. Um, you know, there were all sorts of, I guess you could call them jokes, but jokes that had an underlying kind of bite to them, which is, you know, how could you be Jewish if you have a name that sounds uh, Italian and you hang out with Greek people and you speak a Spanish language, how could you be Jewish? You know, these were some of the kinds of questions that were asked. And of course, they were Jewish. They just uh, were expressing and proclaiming their Jewishness in a different framework. There have been some dramatic transformations in terms of Sephardic Jewish community life in Seattle, as across the country, as for really every kind of community. Essentially, in Seattle, Sephardic Jews initially congregated in the central area, in the central district of Seattle. There are a number of reasons for that. One is because that became the spot where they decided to set down roots and establish their own synagogues. 
one of the reasons for that was because many of the other areas in Seattle at that time, I'm talking about in the, especially 1920s and afterwards, were restricted. Now, when we think about racial covenants in Seattle and in the United States, um, oftentimes we think about Black people and Asian people and Pacific Islander people, which were, these were excluded categories in many neighborhoods in Seattle and the greater Seattle area. But there were also some districts or some areas in Seattle that included in the uh, in the housing covenants exclusions of Hebrews, which was the term that was used at the time, understanding Jews as a racial group. Uh, there were even restrictions in, uh, in Clyde Hill, Bellevue, for example. After World War II, there was a housing development that came up that on its covenants in 1946 said Aryans only after World War II even. So in other words, these restrictive kinds of clauses in terms of housing limited in the early period, especially before World War II, places where Jews could uh, comfortably reside. The Central District became one of those important pieces. The Central District um, had an important Sephardic community uh, that was adjacent to and intermixed with the broader Ashkenazi Jewish community. Um, and there was also a very diverse area that included Japanese people. It included, especially as we move closer to World War II and after World War II, an increasingly significant uh, Black community. There was also a Filipino community. There were a lot of different communities that were residing in the Central District that gave it its um, kind of multifaceted, uh, multilingual, multiracial uh, dynamic. What transpires is essentially after World War II, there are a number of different factors that contribute to Jews of all different kinds, Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, largely leaving the Central District. And that has to do in part with general demographic transformations. It has to do also with white flight. Jews finally being recognized by their neighbors and by their by the state as like essentially white people and being eligible for certain kinds of federal programs like uh, federal loans, the GI Bill, some of these things that were not open to say black people that created a divide between those communities and also contributed to Jews leaving the Central District and relocating the observant Jewish communities and the two main Sephardic synagogues to the Seward Park area. And so that dispersion of the community or relocation of the community, it was not as if the old central district, or as it was called Little Jerusalem, the area around, say, Yesler, and that area was transplanted in whole to Seward Park. Rather, what wound up happening was a kernel of the community transported itself to Seward Park, whereas many other families dispersed all across the city, all across the greater region. And so that sense of having a really intimately connected Sephardic Jewish community where you could go down the streets or go into shops and grocery stores and hear people speaking Ladino, that largely came to an end. But that was also because the new American generation, American-born generations, experienced the pressures of assimilation. And this is a phenomenon that all immigrant groups experience. You know, the, the stigma that is associated with speaking a foreign language, 
uh, the stigma that is associated with speaking uh, with an accent really contributed to the erasure of the Ladino language among the Sephardic Jews in Seattle. So you have a fracturing of the community in terms of where it is living in the city, and you have a reduction of public expressions uh, and the, even the ability to converse in the historic language of the Sephardic people, namely Ladino. Seattle became an important hub of Ladino and broader Sephardic cultural expression in the early 20th century. After New York, it was the only major site of a robust Ladino theater scene. We used to put on performances at Washington Hall, for example. Um, and it is also like if you're reading the Ladino newspapers in New York, you and if you you know parachuted into the United States from outer space and you didn't know the geography, you probably would have thought that Seattle was a borough of New York City because all of the news and reportage about what's going on in Seattle is really quite uh, uh, robust. And one of the other features that made Seattle distinctive from a cultural perspective is that it had a number of important rabbis and chazans of, of cantors who brought with them the uh, specific and unique Ottoman cantorial style. So in other words, if you go to a Sephardic synagogue, and still today in Seattle, you can hear some of the uh, chanting that will uh, evoke some of the sounds that you might otherwise associate with Islam or the mosque. Because essentially the musical modes that were adopted for liturgical music among Sephardic Jews in the Ottoman Empire were modeled on the broader Ottoman and Middle Eastern musical style, which is called makam. There are songs that are essentially the same melody uh, the same sounds that you can hear sung in all the languages of the broader Mediterranean world. So you can have the same music, but lyrics in Greek, Armenian, Arabic, Turkish, Ladino. One of my favorite examples, like this was a big moment for me thinking about these songs, Pulp Fiction. You remember Pulp Fiction, the movie in the 90s? The opening soundtrack to that song is a sped up version of a song called Miserlou, which was released on a record by Jack Mayash. One of these songs that was sung by all of the different Ottoman communities, same melody, but they all sang it in different lyrics. was brought into America in Greek versions, in Ladino versions, and in Arabic versions. And it was Dick Dale, who was a, a surf rock singer in the 60s, who popularized the song.
and then that's how it eventually got into Pulp Fiction. But there is a Ladino version of that song uh, as well that is drawn from the same broader popular musical uh, practices of the broader Ottoman Empire that were shared across communities. So I think that's another really important feature to recognize the way in which Jews were embedded in a broader kind of cultural context in the Mediterranean world of the Ottoman Empire. And they transferred some of those cultural expressions with them when they came to the United States. That was Dr. Devin Nahr, University of Washington Sephardic Studies Chair, speaking about the significance of Seattle's Sephardic Jewish community. He wrote the afterword for a new graphic novel, We Are Not Strangers, written and illustrated by local author Josh Tuninga. We Are Not Strangers is available in bookstores now. Songs that refer to Miserlu are sung by Jack Mayesh, Dick Dale, and Black Eyed Peas. For KBCS, I'm Lucy Briginski. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.